Welcome to the Mavericks and Misfits podcast, where not quite fitting into the religious status quo is a good thing. Slick church trends deceive us. Denominational traditions can blind us, but truth from the heart of God always transforms us. And now, here's our host, a self-proclaimed ministry maverick and church misfit, Jeff Lyle. Hey everybody, welcome back to Mavericks and Misfits. This is Jeff, grateful that you've tuned in again. Really grateful that you guys keep listening, grateful for those of you that we have heard from. And if you're new to the Mavericks and Misfits podcast, it's really simple. We are just a collection of Christians who have um, decided somewhere along the line that status quo Christianity is not really our gig. It's not (laughs) something we're interested in um, perpetuating. We don't want to live in it. We choose to come outside of the box, think biblically, think for ourselves, and at the same time, very committed to the body of Christ, very committed to the Word of God, very committed to the local church. We are not a bunch of rebels in that sense of being a maverick, but we are uh, willing to question the status quo, prepackaged, easily swallowed, digestible version of Christianity that is kind of Um, the mainstay in the United States of America and in many parts of the West. We just want biblical Christianity. Uh, We don't want to have to pick and choose between certain things in the Word of God. We want all of it. We want the Lord. We want all of His truth. We want all of His love. We want all of His gifts. We We want it all. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do not apologize for being a wholehearted Christian who's not willing to settle for anything less than what Jesus Christ has purchased for me offered to me and secured for me through his glorious life, death, and resurrection. And so um, it's about being wholehearted. It's about um, saying to ourselves and to one another that there's more. And so we're pressing in for that. Today, I want to talk to you along the lines of how the enemy accuses the servants of God. Um, One of the things that I believe must be a part of the Christian experience is is that when we come to know Jesus Christ, when we come to know the truth, when we are saved, born again, redeemed, justified, set free, however you want to describe that, when our life is surrendered to Jesus, part of that surrender results in an outflow of us serving the Lord with our lives. Yeah, we're not just sitting back and listening to podcasts all day. We're not just perpetual Bible study or perpetually you know, in prayer groups. We are individuals that have to have an outflow. And so as Christians who have so much glorious goodness from God that he's placed on the inside of us, we want that to flow out into the lives of others. So we're servants. We're sons, we're daughters, but we're servants of God. That means that we want to advance his mission. We want to know, Father, what are you doing in my generation? What are you doing in my region? What are you doing in my city, my community? And we want to get in on that. And it really is that simple. We we believe that what has been birthed on the inside of us um, will will come out from us, and we are to make a difference for the glory of Jesus in our lives. So we don't have any problem saying, "Yeah, we're a servant of God." That phrase is live, uh, listed over and over again in both Old and New Testaments. Paul, the apostle, I mean, think about this: he's an apostle that raised the dead. Uh, he worked creative miracles. Um, he flowed in signs and wonders. He wrote probably two-thirds of the New Testament. And he was a God-called apostle who had seen the resurrected Son of God, been called up to the third heaven, saw wonders that it wasn't even he wasn't even allowed to write down. And so great was the ecstatic experience of Paul in the supernatural realm that 
he had to have a thorn in his flesh to keep him from walking in pride because he had seen glories that no other man or woman that we know of had ever seen. And yet when Paul describes himself in his letters, do you remember how he describes himself most often? He says, I'm a servant. I want you to swallow that for a second. Paul says, I am a servant of God. And more than once, he referred to himself as a servant to people who was indebted to people, that his life was no longer his own. So when we, when we take up the cross of Jesus Christ and we follow him, part of that following is serving others. And the devil hates that. The enemy hates when your life is not just, you know, caught up sitting in a room in a, you know, constant, you know, thread of self-introspection or Bible study or prayer. The devil hates it when you, when you actually leave that place of study and meditation and prayer and you go out and make a difference for Jesus. And so he fights. And some of you have a call on your life. Some of you, everybody's got a call, but some of you have recognized the call of God on your life that you're destined to do something for the Lord and you know specifically where he's called you in this season, what he's, he's requiring of you. And so you've said yes to it, and I applaud that. Your yes is important. It's the beginning of wonderful things when you say yes. Yes, Lord, I'll answer the call. Yes, I will be faithful to what you've assigned for me. But the yes is the easy part. It's keeping it a yes that is the challenging part. And one of the reasons why living out faithfully your calling and your assignment is difficult is because the devil fights you. The enemy has nothing else to do except fight Christians. That's really all he wants to do. Um, he's already got the world, so he's not really fighting them. He's just keeping them contained. And uh, his proactive warfare is against the church. His proactive warfare is against you. His proactive warfare is 100% focused on the church of Jesus Christ because we're the only entity in existence on the planet that can proactively bring glory to the devil's enemy, who is God Almighty, who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So the devil's fighting you. Just go ahead and believe that. Um, I don't see the demons behind every shrub, but I am no fool. I know. I'm not, as Paul said, we are not ignorant of his strategies. The devil is out there. The devil is working. His demonic army is organized and militant and committed. And um, so that means that if you've committed your life to Jesus and are walking this thing out, then you've got a bullseye on you. Now, we're not to live in fear because the Bible says, submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and the devil will run away from you. So that's great news. But you do have to recognize that there is a war. And so I'm going to give you today from probably what's going to sound like a strange book of the Bible to talk about warfare. I'm going to talk to you from Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to read you two verses from Nehemiah chapter 4. This is a book of the Bible that the Lord is leading me to do um, a lengthy study at uh, church at Winder, where I'm the lead pastor. And I'm going to be taking our flock through much of the book of Nehemiah because it's a book about building. It's a book about mission. It's a book about answering the call of God for a season and in a generation. And it's a book that includes clear um, details about how the enemy fights us. And the enemy is represented in Nehemiah chapter four by primarily two dudes named Sanballat and Tobiah. Kind of cool names, but they're terrible men. Sanballat and Tobiah are um, individuals that want to—they <laughs> want to—they want to crush the work of Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah has made great sacrifice. He's answered the call of God. He's back in Jerusalem to build up the wall of God that had fallen when they were destroyed and taken away captive um, decades earlier. And Nehemiah said, God, I'll go back and I'll bring back the glory to Israel if you'll equip me and, and, and resource me. I'll go do it. And so Nehemiah is back and he's leading the people and they're building the wall and the glory is going to come back to Jerusalem. And the enemies around Jerusalem hate it. They hate the fact that the Jews are back. And so they're fighting Nehemiah, they're fighting the Hebrews, they're fighting the work of God. And so let me just read you these two verses from Nehemiah chapter 4. It's the first two verses. It says, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heap of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. And then Nehemiah prays in verse number four. I said two verses, but let me give you four. Here's his prayer. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunts on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. So Sanballat and Tobiah are coming hard against the people of God. They're coming hard against the work of God. They're coming hard against the one whom God has appointed to lead. His name's Nehemiah. And from the accusations and the resistance of Sanballat and Tobiah, we get a little bit of a symbolic picture that exposes how the enemy, not Sanballat and Tobiah in our day, but the devil, Satan and his actual demons, how, how they will come against you if you have committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ and have decided to walk out that commitment by living a life of purpose, by answering the calling, by being faithful to what God has assigned you, by pursuing the Lord in all things. The devil doesn't mind lukewarm Christians. They actually help him and serve his purposes. But the devil hates a committed believer. And more than likely, if you're listening to the Mavericks and Misfits podcast, you're committed. You're so committed that you're willing to break ranks with normal status quo boxed in Christianity. And you're saying, God, I want it all. And so you've got a bullseye on you. And I want to expose the enemy so you're not ignorant of his strategies against you. So let me take you just through these verses and give you what I believe are kind of like five accusations against those who are trying to do a work for God. Five accusations pictured by the words of Sanballat and Tobiah. Here's the first one. You have no power. This is the first accusation. You have no power. Now notice that the, these accusations came when Sanballat heard that Nehemiah and the Jews were building the wall. They were doing the work of God. They were putting their hands to the assignment that God had given them. And it says that Sanballat, when he heard that this work of God was being resurrected, because he's living in the surrounding areas, and he's used to the Jews, the people of God, being nothing and doing nothing. And he, he's kind of running the show in the region. And now the Jews are coming back under Nehemiah, and they're starting to bring back the things that would bring back the glory of God. And so he was mad. He was greatly enraged, and he started immediately into the ministry of accusation. And so he gets a crew, and they head up to Jerusalem where the work is being done. 
And he says out loud in front of the Jews and in front of the people that are with him, including the full army that he has some authority over in Samaria, and he's shouting out over and over again in various ways, what are these feeble Jews doing? So here's the first accusation. You have no power. Why is that important? Well, because the enemy wants you to doubt what God has has said. The enemy wants you to doubt that God has equipped you to do what God has called you to do. And so the enemy says, this work is too hard for you. This assignment is too hard for you. This calling is way, way too hard for you. You don't have any power. You're just feeble. And the enemy will have you focus on everything that's lacking in you. And he'll accuse you in the places where you're weak, in the places where you're not impressive, in the places where you're not resourced, in the places where you're not strong. And, you know, oftentimes, this is where he'll remind you of your past failures. (laughs) These feeble Jews, don't you remember? You guys have rebelled against your God and God's been punishing you for 70 years in Babylon and you think you're going to come back and have, have his power on your life? No way. You shouldn't even start this thing out. You shouldn't even try, you feeble Jews, to to get this work going. You have no power. You're feeble. You're feeble. You're feeble. And the enemy constantly reminds us of where we're weak. And the reason is because he does not want us to even begin to do a work for God. And yet, it's funny to me. I mean, Jesus confronted this in portions of Scripture. Remember when the the man who had the uh, demon-possessed son and the disciples couldn't help out this family and so Jesus shows up on the scene and the disciples were unable to cast out the demon. And the, the boy's father said to Jesus, hey, if, if you can, help me. And Jesus says, what do you mean if I can? If I can? He says, sir, all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to him that believes, to her that believes. That's the principle. And so when, when you're reminded of, of your lack of power, when you're reminded that you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and most of the time, I'm just going to be honest with you, man. God, When God gives an assignment, he makes it way bigger than your natural abilities. And you you will reg- regularly find out that you don't have a clue how to do what he's called you to do. That's okay. That's just the way the Lord works. Why? Because it gives you a chance to lean so hard upon him. And if you can believe, all things are possible. And so we don't listen to the devil when he says you have no power, that you're feeble and you're weak. Here's the second accusation against those that are trying to do a work for God that they've been called to. You have no substance. You don't have the resources. That's what he says. You're not, you may have the power, but you don't have what you need to get the job done. He, he asked this question, Sandballot does. He goes, are y'all going to restore this for yourselves? In other words, you may be able to begin it, but it's going to amount to nothing. You, he's confronting you with your lack of resource. He's saying, you got to do this on your own. Notice the phrase. It's, are you going to do this for yourself? And it's a double-edged sword there. In other words, he's perhaps questioning the motives. Oh, are you doing this great work so you'll be known as the person that did the great work? Oh, are you doing this for your own glory? Are you doing this for your own namesake? Are you doing this so people will pay attention to you? So there's the accusation of, of self-advancement. But I think he's actually, the more important part that we can grasp from this is you're all on your own. You're going to have to do this on your own. How are you going to do this? You're all all on your own. You're going to do it by yourself because the Lord's certainly not going to help you. You don't have any substance. You're not going to have what you need. You might be able to start it, but it's never, ever going to work out. And the enemy starts getting you to forecast on how in the world you're going to keep it going once you get it going. 
And so he gets you to try to operate in a season where there's, I mean, you're not there yet. You're on step one, maybe. And he's talking to you about step 101 and he's saying, oh yeah, you might be able to get step one done, but hey, forecast forward. um, You'll never make it to the hundredth step. And I, I love what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in chapter one. In the first Philippians uh, 1 6, he said this. He said, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so there's a principle there in the kingdom that what the Lord starts, the Lord will finish it and it will be sustained and it will keep going. So you're not doing it for yourself. You're not doing it by yourself. And and when you've committed your life and your hands to a, a season of doing what God's told you to do, he who began the good work is going to finish the good work in you. And so you'll have your substance. You may not have it all at the onset. I mean, listen, Jesus taught us to pray for daily bread. You'll have what you need when you need it. And so you don't fail to start and, and continue in a project because you don't you don't have a you know a stockpile of everything clearly seen and um, you know cataloged. I, listen, I'm I'm everything I've ever done in the kingdom. I've had to begun begin with my big yes. I just have to say yes to a big God, and then I have, I have to trust Him to supply what is needed to do the very thing that He called me to. The thing to which I've said yes. That's called faith. And the younger you are, the more you need to hear this. You're not going to have it all laid out before you as soon as you say yes. You have to persevere. You have to go into the unknown. You have to be willing to risk it. You have to get your yes has to be a faith. And if you've got everything on day one that you know you're going to need, if you see it and can catalog it and and it's right there, you don't need faith. And so what does God do? God says, I want you to begin even though you don't know how you're going to do it. I'm going to resource it. I'm going to take care of you. Some of you need that word right now. So the enemy says you have no substance. You'll never be able to finish it. Here's the third accusation. You have no backing from heaven. That's what the enemy loves to tell you. The enemy loves to tell you God's not in this thing. You you misheard God. You have no backing from heaven. Where do I see that? It's when Sanballat and Tobiah, again, they're asking these questions. They're doing it publicly. They're accusing publicly. They're trying to discourage and weaken the hands of the people. And they they ask this question, oh, will they sacrifice? Oh, you're going to start lifting up some sacrifices to God in this temple that, that has been built? <clears throat> are you are you rebuilding the wall to keep us out? Because I'm going to tell you, even if you keep us out, the sacrifices you're offering to God, they aren't going to make any difference whatsoever. God's not here. Don't you remember your God abandoned you? Don't you remember you, you failed God and he's not for you? You're going to offer up some sacrifices to him now? And so the accusation is basically, you know, you may try to make sacrifices, but God is not going to help you. Oh, other people he'll help, but you guys, nah, you're not going to get helped. And so it's that idea that God will not assist. God will not aid. God is not for you. And so in this season, when he's trying to debilitate you, the enemy's trying to debilitate you, it's a season of accusation of everything that you've done that might make you think God would never, ever want to use you again. And because, listen, the Hebrews had failed God uh, immeasurably. They had really imploded spiritually decades before in their ancestors, and God had clearly spanked them. He wore them out, and so, yeah, they had been disciplined, but the season of discipline was over. This was a season of restoration. You You need to get this. In a season of restoration, the enemy will try to fight your your concept that God is merciful, gracious, and restoring. So the enemy will tell you after you've been disciplined by God that it's not discipline, it's constant permanent punishment. 
And so he'll make you dart, uh, doubt the compassionate heart of God. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, oh, y'all, y'all go ahead and sacrifice. Go ahead. Go through the motions. Go ahead and do all the things that other people do. But I'm going to tell you, you're not going to get the results. I like what Hebrews 6.10 says. The writer of Hebrews says, and it's one of my favorite verses to keep people encouraged, keep myself encouraged. It says, God is not unrighteous so as to forget your work and the labor of love that you've showed toward his name and how you have ministered to the saints and continue to minister. God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love. And so the accusation is God is not going to help you, but Hebrews 6.10 tells you as a servant of God, God would God has to remember your work and labor of love. He has to. Why? Because not to do so would be unrighteous, and he can't be unrighteous. And the labor of love God sees is that you have shown toward him by ministering unto others. I want you to hear me on this. I believe in ministering unto the Lord. I believe I come from a culture of night and day worship and prayer where their ministry is unto the Lord. And I validate that. I affirm that. But I also want you to hear this. God doesn't need any ministry. He receives it, but he doesn't need it. And so our worship and our prayers are more for our sake than his because it brings us into a position of alignment with him. But people need our ministry. Human beings need the ministry of the church. And God says when we do that, and so if you're in the midst of a calling that is going to benefit and bless and help other people, you need to know that God is so righteous that he will never, ever forget what you're trying to do for his name and that you continue to try to do for his name and you will have the backing of heaven. And so your sacrifice means something. Your investment means something. Your intentionality means something. Other people may not notice it like it needs to be noticed, but God never forgets your work and your labor of love. And here's the fourth of the five. Um, This one is basically the accusation says, you will never, ever have hope to complete this. Sandballet says, he laughs and he says, are they going to finish this up in a day? So in other words, it's it's the idea, it's the accusation. There's no results coming here. Look around you. You don't see any results today. And if the results are not immediately visible, why don't you just go ahead and quit? And it's in this moment where you're, you can get discouraged by future difficulties that haven't even arrived yet. And, and so what the enemy does is he gets you to look down right now, see what's going on. The metrics aren't there. The results aren't there. The fruit's not there. And you're running out of time. That's basically what it is. Well, they finish up in a day. And, and the core accusation is you're not going to be able to hold out. You're not going to be able to make it to the end of this thing. You are too weak. Your strength is leaving. Your resources is leaving. Do you see how this just bombards the mind? And yet Galatians, remember Galatians 6, 9, do not become weary in well-doing for in the proper season, you will reap as long as you don't quit. That's Galatians 6, 9. Don't be weary in well-doing. Um, no, you're not going to finish up a day. No, it is long and it's hard. And yes, there are days where it looks absolutely fruit, fruitless. I mean, in the, in the metaphor of farming, you never reap in the same season that you plant. The harvest doesn't come in during planting season. The harvest doesn't come in during the uh, tilling up of the ground and the watering of the seed and the cultivating of the plant. That's not harvest season. There's actually more work than there is harvest. And the harvest will come in, but it only comes in after the well-doing season, the labor and the, the sowing and the sacrificing and all of that. And the promise from Galatians 6, 9 that counteracts the accusation of the enemy is, no, in the proper season, you're going to reap as long as you don't quit. 
And the enemy just says quit because the enemy always wants you to quit before the harvest comes in. Get that. The enemy, the stronger the temptation to quit is, it is because the harvest is about to show up and the enemy can discern the seasons better than any of us. And so he tries to get you to quit before you're able to make it to the harvest season. And so when he tells you you don't have any hope of ever finishing, he's just trying to get you out of there before you get to reap the harvest. And then finally, the fifth accusation is you have nothing to offer. This is where the, the accusation comes and the enemy says to Israel, will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? So in other words, Sanballat and Tobiah, they're looking at the wall and they're trying to get the Israelites to look at the wall. And they're saying, hey guys, you are poor material for a work from God. (laughs) You should be thrown out. You're you're on the rubbish pile. You're a heap of nothing. You're, You're a burned out one at that. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're pointing to everything that God said he was going to restore. And they're pointing out everything again that's wrong with it. And they're saying, look at what you've got to work with. You've got a bunch of burned up, blackened, smoldering um, uh, bricks from the wall that's been torn down for decades, and it's a heap of rubbish. Man, that's, that's a strong word because the enemy wants you to get fixated on the inglorious, the non-glorious things that you have to work with. We live in such a hype day, man. Everything's got an Instagram filter on it. Everything's got, you know, a 30-second Snapchat vibe and likes and followers and hearts and stuff like that. It's ridiculous. But, and listen, I'm on social media, so I'm not preaching against social media. I'm just preaching against the idea that you're validated and receive identity from social media. And so when Sanballat and Tobiah are saying, look around, it's nothing but a pile of trash. That's what they're saying. They're saying you're you're really poor material for a work from God. You ought to just be thrown out. But I like what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1. Some of my favorite verses. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. For you see your calling, brothers, how that not many wise people after the flesh, not not many who are mighty, not many who are noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And and ultimately, Paul says, and the reason he did it is because he doesn't want any flesh glorying in his presence. So God actually chooses the heaps of rubbish. He chooses unlikely people. He chooses unspectacular people. If you think you're spectacular and you're awesome, you're probably not going to be able to walk in a calling of God. Because in order to really bring glory to God, you have to forsake your own glory. And if you are enamored with your own glory, your own skill, your own experience, your own education, your own uh, spiritual gifting, if you, if, you, if you are the narcissist who looks in the mirror of all that is your beauty, then, um, yeah, you're not ready. You're not fit for a work of God. On the other hand, if you know your weakness, if you know your trembling, if you know your lack, if you know your limp, if you know that you have to lean hard upon God because you don't have anything of yourself to offer, oh man, you are wondrously qualified to do a great work for God. Some of you are listening must receive that word. That your weakness is not inhibiting your effectiveness for God. It's more likely your strength. So your natural weakness is nothing for God to just say, oh, I can, I can actually take that because your weakness will 
will cause you to depend on me more. It's people's strengths that get in the way of the call of God and the work of God. So when the enemy tells you you're weak, just go ahead and agree with him. Say, yeah, I'm weak, but I'm not trusting in me. Yeah, in my flesh, there dwells nothing good. My, my apostle Paul told me that. And so, yeah, devil, I agree with you. I'm weak. I'm struggling. I don't have the resources. I don't know how to do it. But devil, let me answer you this too. While you're sitting there accusing me, I'm over here praying and I'm talking to my God about all that you've said. And he's just telling me that he's greater than every accusation you've just hurled at me. And so I don't have to listen to you. So devil, in the name of Jesus, why don't you shut your mouth? In the name of Jesus, the Lord rebuke you. In the name of Jesus, the blood is against you. In the name of Jesus, I've been called by God. I am established by God. I am a blood-bought child of God. God is my father. He is your enemy. And you're coming against me, a child of God. So why don't you take your accusations and literally go to hell with them? You see, we've got to get to the point where we know how to take what the enemy accuses us of and turn it right back around on him. Because every weakness, every lack of resource, every fear, everything that might classify you as feeble, every, every idea that you have been disciplined and chastised by God in the past, just turn it back around on the devil and say, you know what, you're right. And that's what grace is all about. And Satan, there's no grace for you. And so you operate in fear and you operate in anger and you operate in accusation. I understand why you do that, Satan, because there's zero grace for you. In spite of what Mick Jagger said in the 1960s, there is no sympathy for the devil. And so we say to Satan, I'm not operating in the domain that you're operating in. There's grace for my weakness and there is power that meets me from heaven because I'm not relying on myself. So guys, you've got to get bold with the accuser and you've got to spin it right back on him. Speak the blood of Jesus against him. Speak the realities of the kingdom against him. When the enemy accuses you, just point him to Jesus. Say, take it up with Jesus. Satan, I am doing, Nehemiah said this in a different place. I am doing a good work and cannot come down. And so you have to say that. You have to say, devil, I'm doing a good work. I don't have time for your nonsense. If you've got a problem with me, take it up with my master. All right, my time's gone today. I want to remind you, go to transformingtruth.org. Check out the website there. Um, avail yourself of resources. We just uploaded a bunch of new sermon videos. There's the 30-minute truth shots that we do, and then there's full sermons, 45, 55 minutes. And it's a great season. We'll be releasing some new stuff as we're beginning to film in a few weeks. Uh, the new place at the Church at Winder, where God's called me. Great people. I'm loving um, I'm, I, I do, I miss my, my previous church family, but they're still my family, but my assignment, man, and the new family I've got at the church at Winder, it's just going great. And so grateful for what God's doing. And if you live in the Bethlehem, Winder, Auburn, Athens, Decula area of Georgia, come and see me at the church at Winder and, um, come and be a part of what God's doing here. He's, he's doing a good work. He's doing a good work. And of course the enemy's running his mouth. I don't care. I'm used to it. It's, it's just the way the enemy works, but we'd love to have you. But at transformingtruth.org, avail yourself of the resources there. If you haven't gotten a copy of my book, I'd love for you to have a copy of that. You can order it at transformingtruth.org, or you can get it at Amazon. And then there's a narrated version of it that I narrate on audible.com. You can help the ministry by doing that, by taking care of, uh, an opportunity to buy and purchase a book, maybe give it to somebody 
and help us out here. And as always, the only thing we really regularly ask you to do is if you're being helped and blessed by Mavericks and Misfits, would you rate and review it wherever you listen to it? And the um, App Store, if you get it there, if you get it on Amazon or Spotify or wherever it is that you're listening, um, just help us get the word out. We want to help Christians come out of the evangelical box that is way too small to fit the God of the Bible into. And um, I'd love for you to be able to rate and review us. So I'm out of here. Don't you love that music? It lets you know that you have accomplished something. You've listened to another version, excuse me, another episode of Mavericks and Misfits. And until next time, um, I just pray that you'll continue to walk this thing out. Stop listening to the enemy. He has no authority in your life. We'll talk to you next time. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's Mavericks and Misfits podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, Please subscribe, rate, and review Mavericks and Misfits with Jeff Lyle on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your review helps us to reach more people and spread the unfiltered message of Jesus. And don't forget that you can connect with Jeff's social media links at maverickmisfit.com. We look forward to reconnecting with you on our next episode.